title of today's message is Walking Outside in the Cold. Walking Outside in the Cold. Hopefully it'll make more sense in a little bit here. When I was putting together this teaching, it was 23 degrees outside. Um, This morning it was a little warmer, or else there would probably be snow on the ground. Um, But that's typical, right, for this time of year in Idaho. Uh, It was negative 8 when I looked it up in Stanley, Idaho, which is not too far from here. And, you know, when I'm driving to work or I'm driving around, and when I was working at the school, I'd see kids walking to school in, like, shorts and a T-shirt. I don't know if you've seen that. I've I've seen kids, I've seen snow on the ground at the school and kids going out to recess in shorts and a t-shirt. I can't, I don't understand it. I don't know if maybe you get used to it after a lot of years. Maybe they're natives to Idaho. Maybe they lived in somewhere colder than here. And so for them, it's warm. But I'm out there bundled up. You know, I didn't want to wear a scarf. I didn't, but it, I would have. Like beanie, jackets, and I was cold. And I would try to run around and keep warm and do whatever I could. But it is mind-boggling. I don't know the secret. Perhaps someday I will. Jesus referenced the cold hearts that would come upon the earth in the last days. Matthew 24, 12. He said, the love of many will grow cold because lawlessness will increase. That's what we're seeing today. Lawlessness is increasing Just turn on the news, go outside, and you're going to see that people's hearts are growing cold. Paul described it in this way in 2 Timothy 3, 2-5. It's this extensive list. He says people are going to be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, Haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. He says, Timothy, avoid such men as these. It literally means shun them, turn away from them. People were coming into the churches with all these behaviors, and they were saying, we're Christians, or they had a form of godliness, and Paul says, avoid them, turn from them. Don't let anyone think that's true Christianity. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5 and 6, not to even eat with such a one. If they call themselves a brother and they're living like that, that's the loving thing to do. They need to know the truth, that that's not what it means to be a Christian. But what about those who are on the outside? What about people that are living like this list, but they're living outside of the church? Scripture teaches we have to go outside to meet them. We need to give them the good news. The text we're looking at today, we're back in Colossians. I was going to try to finish out the whole last chapter of Colossians, but there's too much in it. So we're going to break it up into two final teachings that will lead us, Lord willing, right into Christmas Eve and so forth. Colossians 4, 2 through 6. Paul's wrapping up this letter. He's giving a practical exhortation that we've been looking at extensively in Colossians 3. Now he's finishing up in chapter 4 in these first six verses. It's like he's putting the bow on the present. He's finishing up. I can't wrap presents well. My wife can. But imagine he's just finally putting that bow on, taping it up, ready to send this gift off. 
just about ready to close it out. Let's go ahead and read Colossians 4, 2 through 6. It says, Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Praying at the same time for us as well that God may open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been imprisoned in order that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned as it were with salt, so that you may know how you should respond to each person. If you have a New King James, if you have a ESV, or there's a couple other translations that says walk in wisdom towards outsiders or those who are outside redeeming the time. Hence the title for today. Walking with wisdom towards those who are outside. We need to walk outside into the cold. We need to meet people in this world. If you remember what Jesus said during his high priestly prayer in John 17, 15, and 18, he says, I do not ask you, he's praying to the Father, I don't ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. John 17, 15, and 18. No, Father, I don't pray that you take them out of the world. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. So there's this tension in the Christian walk. We're not of this world, but we're to go into this world. And if you've been a Christian any time long, you felt that tension. I'm in the world, but I'm not of the world. I'm reaching them with the gospel, and I'm getting close to them, and I'm rubbing shoulders with them, and I want them to, to come to faith in Christ, and I want to tell them about Jesus, but I, I'm feeling this tension here because maybe all they do is curse around me. All they do is... You know, tell dirty jokes around me. All they do is that list that we just looked at in Second Timothy, and I know that I'm not supposed to do that, and so it's not necessarily an easy thing. And that's why Paul says, walk with wisdom. It takes wisdom to rub shoulders with the world. If you just go in there happy-go-lucky, nonchalant, I'm just going to, I'm just going to, oh, I'm not going to get hurt. I'm not going to, this isn't going to have an effect on me. Well, as we're going to see today, it will have an effect. You need to be careful. I want to break down this text with four words that will help us, I think, make our way through it. And I'm going to call these the four keys to the successful Christian walk in the world. Uh, number one is going to be prayer. Prayer, proclamation, performance, and preparation. I give four P's, help you remember it. Prayer, proclamation, performance, and preparation. We're just going to work through all four of these. So number one, Paul says pray. He's telling this Colossian church, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. That's the foundation. That's the bedrock of the Christian faith in your personal devotion and your your personal quiet time with the Lord and in this wor world. If you're going to have any effect for Christ, it needs to be bathed. Your life needs to be bathed in prayer. Recently, the Lord opened the door for me to be a hospice chaplain. I've never been, I've been a chaplain before. I've never been a hospice chaplain, but I threw out some applications and was waiting to hear back and no one's calling me back. And I went to a retirement community and just walked in and said, can I interview? And they said, what job are you interviewing for? And I said, I don't know. I'm just here to interview. 
because I couldn't get an interview. So I just wanted to see someone and talk to someone in a business somewhere, and they never called me back. And so I was like, oh, darn. And then like two days later, this company calls me out of nowhere and says, hey, do you want to come in for an interview? And I'm like, sure, when? And they're like, tomorrow. And I prepared for this retirement community. I spent all this time putting notes together, and I said, you know what, Lord, I'm just going to walk into this interview and tell them about myself, and I have nothing to lose. I don't, I'm not even going to really look up the company. So I walk in there not expecting much, and I sit down, and here's a chaplain, and he starts talking to me. Oh, where are you from? And I said, oh, I'm from Simi Valley. You probably don't know where that, wa- that, where that is. And he says, oh, I, I was married in uh, Simi Valley. You're married in Simi Valley? Yeah, do you know where Sinaloa Road is? Yeah, I know where Sinaloa Road is. He goes, there was a, there's a Seventh-day Adventist church on Sinaloa Road. That's where I was married in 1979. I go, our church rented that same Seventh-day Adventist building years ago. And so we're just hitting it off. And I'm like, man, this is awesome. They're like the interview, I don't know, maybe that was part of the interview. I don't know. But I'm like, I'm really liking this. And then the director came in, and it just went really smooth. And I'm driving home after, and they offered me the job. And so praise the Lord. It's um, it's going to be a good opportunity just to reach people with the love of Christ, reach their families, and just rub shoulders with people in this world. That's what we want to do as Christians. That's what I've been praying for, Lord. Open another door for me to get out into the community and show the love of Christ. And he's like, okay, here you go. And so they're not necessarily a Christian company, but they let us pray um, in the morning for staff and for families and for the day. Every day they pray. And so great opportunity for me. But as I've been training for this job, they've been reiterating to me over and over again hand sanitizer before you go into a facility hand sanitizer if before when you're in the facility probably it's a good idea hand sanitizer if you're going to put gloves on before you put them on hand sanitizer when you take the gloves off hand sanitizer when in doubt hand sanitizer in your car hand sanitizer it's just constant and there's a really friendly uh, older nurse and she's like an and she does infection control with the company and she's very very meticulous and so she is constantly reminding all the staff and they kind of joke around with her but they're like they're thankful that she is meticulous so that hopefully no one gets sick here's my point you can't really overdo a hand sanitizer at least that's what i've been told can you overdo prayer can you overdo thanksgiving you ever met someone and you're like, they're just too thankful? Y- you know, there's a lot to complain about in life. There's a lot to be anxious about, a lot to be worried about. I think we need to drown that out with Thanksgiving. See, Thanksgiving's past, but it's still time to talk again because it's all over this letter. Chapter three, chapter four, Paul keeps going back to it. You're going to pray. Keep an attitude, keep alert with an attitude of Thanksgiving. And so as I was putting this together, you know, I'm thinking about how we struggle in prayer. And I'll talk about that here in a minute. But it all needs to be bathed with thanksgiving. There's a word here that he says, keep alert. Maybe your translation says, keep watch in verse 2. It's Gregor Uo. Keep, be vigilant when you're praying. Keep alert. Watch that your hearts don't become cold. Watch that you're not just going through the motions. So same word I think that Jesus used 
when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he's like, can't you just watch with me for one hour? The disciples kept falling asleep. He kept going off to pray. He's like, be vigilant, be alert. It's like, keep your head on a swivel. Keep your head up, look to heaven, stay in prayer. Keep your hearts ablaze for God. First Thessalonians 5, verse 5 and 6 says, You are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness, so let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and let us be sober. Christians are called to be awake. We're called to be in the light. We're called to be sober, watching, waiting for the Lord. The world is in Scripture It talks about how they're asleep, they're in darkness, they're confused, they're lost. It shouldn't be that way with Christians because we're alert. We're looking for the signs and the times. Our heads are in the word. We are in the light of Christ. So this word alertness or wakefulness in verse 2, it has a connection to the first word, devote. Most of your translations probably say devote. Devote yourself to prayer. And it's this word that means to continue in despite difficulty. It's the same word used in Acts 2.42, where it says they continually devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread, to prayer, and to fellowship. They continued in these things day and night, rejoicing together, um, breaking bread together, praying together. Well, how did they provide for one another? Didn't they have jobs? Didn't they have lives? Weren't they being persecuted? Yet, despite all those things, they continually devoted themselves to those things. And that's what Paul's saying here. You're going to get distracted. You're going to be busy in life. You need to devote yourselves to prayer. When I was reading this verse, I thought of the ambulance company that I used to work for and how I'd be in the back with a patient and I'd look up at the rear view mirror and see the eyes of my partner and they were very heavy. We'd be driving 3 in the morning, 4 in the morning, 5 in the morning, 24-hour shifts, and his eyes would be really heavy. And I'm trying to take a blood pressure or do something, and I'm looking up, and I'm seeing his eyes closed, and I'm tapping, hey, everything okay up there? Checking in on him, and he's slapping his face. He's eating sunflower seeds. He's turning up the music. He's rolling down the window. and It would work for a little bit, but sometimes we'd the hospital would be 30 minutes away, 45 minutes away, and I'd see his eyes start to close again. And it reminded me of these words, to be steadfast and to be awake. He actually fell asleep like two or three times. And I finally said, I'm going to drive the whole shift. Okay, I'll drive all 24 hours. You can be with the patients. I didn't trust him behind the wheel. I was literally driving. He was driving on the 405, and I looked over at him, and his head was like this. And I had to smack him and be like, dude, wake up. He's like, oh, it, I, I didn't, f- he, I think he said, like, I didn't really fall asleep. Or I was like, well, that's good to know. What if I did fall asleep? Who would have? Yeah. So praise God, I'm still here. But that's us as Christians. That's our temptation spiritually, so to speak. Uh, I, I'm going to be okay. I, I can stay awake. And the flesh, the battle in our lives. It's like our eyelids getting heavy and we got to go back to the Lord, back to prayer, back to fellowship, back to where we need to be. Paul knows the struggle. Look at Colossians 4.12. He even talks about his friend Epaphras who struggled in prayer. Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings 
always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. That's Colossians 4.12. He says, Epaphras is laboring earnestly for you in his prayers. And that Greek word is agonizomai. He's striving, struggling. He's agonizing for you in his prayers. Like an athlete in an athletic contest, like an Olympian, he's battling for you, most likely on his knees, up all night, praying for you. Colossians, prayer is a struggle. And so God knows that. Paul knows that. So he says, devote yourselves to this thing. When we need help in prayer and when you're struggling in prayer, a good way to start is thanksgiving. You go, man, I don't know what to pray for. I don't, know, I don't even know where to start. My mind's all over the place. Just start telling the Lord thank you. It's a great way to start. If you can't think of anything, I mean, I don't know how you can't think of anything. Thank him that you're alive and that you can pray. Okay, Lord, thank you for that breath that you just gave me. Thank you for my salvation. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for giving me a church family. Thank you for creating and for for building a home for me in heaven and for wanting to bless me for all eternity. Thank you for providing for me. Most of us are cared for and we have a roof over our heads and we have food on the table and we can go on and on with the things that the Lord has given us. And we need to give him thanks at all times. I want to read Psalm 103, verse 1 through 5. Here's a couple more things that if you're grasping for words and don't know of what you can be thankful for, David's reminding himself and us as well of things that we can bless the Lord over, things that we can give thanks for. Psalm 103, 1 through 5, David says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits, who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, who satisfies your years with, a, with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. Man, he's forgiven us. He's cleansed us. He's washed us. He, he gives us compassion and kindness and grace. He renews us like eagles. Beautiful passage there of things to be thankful for. Some good verses to memorize. Short three verses. First Thessalonians five sixteen through 18. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. At the, in the first chapter of Colossians, Paul actually prays for the church that they would be filled with the knowledge, that they would be filled with the knowledge, I'm actually going to read it, of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects and so forth. That's Paul's prayer, that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will. Some of God's will is very clear in Scripture, and some of it can be a little uncertain. So Paul's prayer is that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will, that you would know his will more, but we have very concrete verses, very direct verses of his will, and one of those is it's his will that you give thanks in everything. This is turning into a Thanksgiving message right around Christmas time, but that's okay. And everything, give thanks. 
It's God's will for us. He loves a thankful person. He loves a cheerful giver. Let's look at verses 3 and 4. Paul's going to ask here for help. Paul needs help, so he's asking them to give a different part of their prayers to something else, and we'll see it in verse 3. He says, praying at the same time for us as well, that God may open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I also have been imprisoned in order that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. So point number two today is proclamation. Proclamation. Paul's asking for their prayers so that he may proclaim the gospel. I need your help, Colossians. I need you to pray for me. I need an open door. I want an open door. Me and my fellow laborers, we're looking for opportunities to get the gospel out, to proclaim it and to do it with clarity. And I love that about Paul. He's not like, I've been preaching for 20 years. I've healed so many people. I've been doing this for so long. I am the Apostle Paul. I don't need help. He's reaching out to these young Christians who are struggling in the faith. He's sorting out all the, their different theological messes, so to speak, that they're going through. And then in the last chapter, he's saying, I need your help. I need your prayers. That's a sign of Christian maturity when you reach out to a younger believer and ask for help. I love that about the Apostle Paul. He's saying, we need your help. I need your help. We're asking you to do the most important thing you can do, and that's pray. For some people, prayer is a last resort. For Paul, it was a first resort. This, please, if you can help me, pray for me. The Philippian church sent him gifts. Other churches sent him gifts. They sent him financial offerings. But most of all, Paul says, I need your prayers. We don't ever want to underestimate the power of prayer. He's saying these open doors, in a sense, hinge upon your prayers. I need these doors to open. I need you to pray and seek the Father. Now the question is, did Paul's request for the Colossian church come to fruition? Were doors open for him? And I think the answer is found in Philippians 1. So if you'll turn there with me, we have the prison epistles. Paul wrote Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon from prison. Some commentators think Colossians was written before Philippians, and if so, it would make sense as we read Philippians 1, 12 through 18, that Paul's prayer or asking the Colossians to pray for him is now going to come to fruition in Philippians 1, 12 and following. He says, now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. Christ was being proclaimed. Paul was proclaiming Christ. Paul's in chains, and he's saying, I need an open door. These prison doors are shut, but I need an open door for the gospel. And God says, okay, I'm going to chain you to a Roman guard. I'm going to put 
the Praetorium Guard all around you. That These are the special forces that were to protect the governor and the emperor. And Paul gets to preach the gospel to them. The gospel is going forth. And he says, I am rejoicing. Even though some were preaching from pretense, false motives. I don't know why they would do that. Somehow they're trying to cause Paul distress while he's in bonds and they're, oh, we're going to preach the gospel. I don't know what, I never understood that. But Paul's like, whatever it may be, their motives for getting the word of God out and proclaiming it, at the end of the day, I'm seeing that it's being proclaimed. I'm seeing that people are coming to faith and I am rejoicing. So the Colossian church, it seems their prayers here were answered. Pretty cool. Who would have reached the Praetorian Guard? Who can reach the governor? Who could reach the kings and the emperors? If you read the book of Acts, Peter, John, Paul, and Jesus even told them, when you stand before kings, don't even, don't even think beforehand. Don't premeditate what you're going to say. Just rely on the Holy Spirit. He's going to give you utterance. So what I love about Paul is he's ready to proclaim the message wherever he's at. What most people think is a closed door, for Paul, that's an open door. You might be in a situation in life and you're like, oh, this is a closed door. This is a lost opportunity. How can I be used here? I feel like I'm not having an impact. And God's like, that's exactly where I want you to be so that I can now use you. So I'm hoping that's my situation. Not necessarily a closed door. It's an open door for the gospel. Here at the bedside of people dying, I'm with their families. I'm saying, Lord, perhaps you're bringing me there as a way of an open door to proclaim your gospel. Point number three, back in Colossians chapter four, point number three is perform. What do you think of when you think of the word perform? I think of a musician on stage, someone playing the piano. Think of maybe ballet or American Idol or some sort of show, like a performance. Psalm 103.6 actually says that God performs. The Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. Oxford Dictionary defines perform as to carry out, to accomplish, or to fulfill. So that's how I'm defining and using perform. Accomplish something. Carry something out. Fulfill it. So the question is, what is Paul telling the Colossian church to carry out or accomplish or perform? And the answer is found in verse 5. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Conduct yourselves. Walk. That same word is translated over and over again in the New Testament as walk. Walking describes the Christian life. It's a metaphor for your Christian journey. You're journeying to heaven, like Pilgrim's Progress, a walk to get to those pearly gates. And so he's saying, walk with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of your opportunity. Who are the outsiders? Walk with wisdom to the outsiders. It's an interesting word that Paul used. He could have said a non-believer, non-Christians, haters of God, um, and so forth. He says outsiders, same word used in Revelation twenty-two fifteen. Outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, the immoral persons, the, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves 
and practices lying. Those are the outsiders. It's those who are outside of Christ, outside of the kingdom, outside of the light, outside of the warmth, outside of the protection of the son of righteousness. They're out in the cold, so to speak. They're out in the dark world. They're confused. They're lost. And Paul's saying, you need to go out to them. You need to walk toward them outside, the outsiders. How do you do it? He says, with wisdom. You need to do it with wisdom. Being in this world and not of this world is not easy, as I mentioned before. Any of you guys that have been in this world, any of you that have had jobs, you know what I'm talking about. You know, and I was referencing that ambulance job earlier. You know, they would play worldly music the and just blast it. And I'm like, man, Lord, how do I navigate? I'm living... I'm living right next to someone for 24 hours, sometimes 48 hours, who isn't a Christian. How do I try to win him to the Lord without being pulled into all of this stuff that he's talking about around me ad nauseum all day long? Talk about a challenge. How to step outside the ambulance, go for a walk, pray, get back in there. Okay, this is a battle. Did that for two and a half years. It's not easy. It takes wisdom. That's what Paul's getting at here. And Paul tells the Ephesian church in Ephesians 5.15, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise men, making the most of your time, for the days are evil. You have to be careful. You have to be careful in this world. And so as the metaphor goes, you can slip out there. You can get hypothermia. You can get frostbite when you're out in the cold. You can think, oh, it's not going to phase me. I'm going to be all right. I'm fine. Let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. There's that song, it's a slow fade when you give yourself away. It's a slow fade. You just, okay, just keep going just a little bit more. I'm okay. I'm okay. And before you know it, you've fallen off the edge. According to penmedicine.org, it says, as a person develops hypothermia, they slowly lose the ability to think and move. In fact, they may even be unaware that they need emergency treatment. Now, when I was working at the school outside, I felt, I thought I was getting hypothermia. I thought when the tips of my fingers were so cold because I had ro- the, ro- the wrong gloves on, I had the wrong pants on, the wrong shoes on, I've learned my lesson in the past year. I go out in the cold now with like six layers on and uh, I'm actually sweating and I enjoy it. I'm ready for it. But back then, I'm wearing slacks and dress shoes out in a field with snow and with no layers underneath. And the PE teacher, he's all bundled up, and he's from Idaho. He goes ice fishing and whatnot. So he knows what to wear, and he's got his warm coffee. And that was part of the thing that I, I should have had that as well, like a warm drink maybe to help. He had the hand warmers. I've learned my lesson. But when it's 20 degrees and windy and you're out there for an hour, I think that's reasonable to think like, hey, at what point is hypothermia a possibility here? I don't know, but so I did squats and I'd run around the, uh, I'd be out there for an hour and a half and they're looking at me. I'm like, I don't care. I'm doing squats. I'm doing lunges across the field. I'm running around. Whatever I can do to stay warm until I get to go back inside. So that's my story. But let me give you a couple stats here. The National Institute of Aging estimates that 28,000 people 
die of hypothermia every year. Study says people think they're okay. Maybe they're a little older. They let their guard down. They're outside a little too long and hypothermia starts to set in and then it's too late. Some estimates say that 40% of mountaineers every year develop frostbite. You ever see someone climbing Mount Everest in shorts and a t-shirt? I haven't either. They probably wouldn't last long. I looked up an article, it was titled this, 14 Essential Items You Need to Climb Everest. It's on RedBull.com. Guess what the top nine essential items that you need have to do with? Keeping yourself warm. Protecting yourself from the cold. Yeah, they talked about a lamp and some travel gear and things like that, an ice pick and so forth. But let me just quickly give you the top nine things that are essential if you're going to climb Mount Everest. Probably no one here will attempt this, but if you do, you need to know to bring these things. A thermal one-piece, number one. Number two, a brand new pair of socks. He said, no, old pairs of socks won't do. You need a fresh pair. He goes, I opened the bag right before the trip. That's what he said. Number three, power stretch for legs. That's also known as tights, I guess. <laughs> That's when guys wear tights, when, if you're going to climb Mount Everest. Number four, fleece. Number five, an expedition suit filled with goose down. These are anywhere from thirteen dollars to $1,800. They make you look like the Michelin Man. It's like a NASA space suit almost to where you are fully just engulfed in goose down. Number six, a good pair of boots. Number seven, mitts. Number eight, a disposa disposable hand warmers. And number nine, a ski mask. And what you can wear all that. You can wear all these layers, put it in the expedition suit and all of that, and you're still not guaranteed to get frostbite or hypothermia. Some of these, many 40% or so, still develop some sort of of cold illness or cold-related injury. So when Paul's telling the Ephesian church, be careful how you walk, when he's telling the Colossian church to walk with wisdom towards those who are outside, I think that's what Paul's getting at on a spiritual level. Count the cost. Don't be naive. Be wise as serpent. Be as a serpent be innocent as doves when you're dealing with the world realize the power of the flesh the power of the world the power of satan and you need to put on jesus christ you need to have his wisdom you need to have his mind you need to have his heart his knowledge and then go reach them like a mountain climber is counting the cost making sure they have all their essential items making sure they have all these layer layers on now they're going to go on that trek that's how we need to be as christians we don't just haphazardly nonchalantly just dive out into the world thinking oh i'm fine i'm just going to go out there no it needs to be bathed in prayer it needs to be done with wisdom and care and counting the cost Colossians 2.3 says that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of knowledge and wisdom. He's the wisdom that you and I need to constantly put on when we interact with the world. And what does this wisdom look like? It's found in Colossians 3, verse 12. It's a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. It's Colossians 3.13, which is forgiveness. 
Colossians 3.14, love. Colossians 3.15, peace and thankfulness. That's what people should see when they see you, when you rub shoulders with people in the world. That's the warmth, so to speak, that should radiate from you. Compassion, kindness, gentleness, forgiveness, peace, love. That's what the world should see. They have these cold, stony hearts. They're in the darkness. They're in the stupor going through the world, and they need the bright light of Christ that's penetrating your heart and hopefully into their stony, cold hearts. Jesus said of John the Baptist in John 5.35, he was a lamp that was burning and was shining. No one could put that fire out. He was on fire for the Lord. He didn't care. He's eating what? Was it crickets or whatever? He's got this weird-looking camel hair suit on, and he's out in the wilderness, and he's like, I'm just preaching the gospel. I'm preparing the way for the Lord. And people were going out to him in in droves. He was winning the hearts of people over to the Lord so that they were ready when Jesus came on the scene. Jesus said in Luke 12, 35, be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps burning. Keep your lamps lit. Keep your lamps on fire. As the world gets darker and darker in the last days, as lawlessness increases, as it gets colder and colder, so to speak, you are to be hotter and hotter. You are to get closer to the source, Jesus. He's the light. He's the lamp burning. You need to be closer to him so that you're prepared to go out into the world with love and compassion and with the gospel. So to walk with wisdom means to let your light shine, means to let the warmth be felt, let your love radiate the lives of others. Here's my last point. Preparation. The fourth key to the successful Christian walk in the world is preparation. It's Paul's final encouragement here in verse 6. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned as it were with salt, so that you may know how you should respond to each person. How do you know how to respond? When people are coming at you with different things, different questions, different people from all walks of life, different backgrounds, how do you respond? How do you talk? How do you deal with them? Paul says, prepare your mouths. Prepare your speech. Season it with salt. It needs to be gracious. Make sure salt is part of your preparation. I don't cook, but for those of you that do, I would think that salt is probably a major ingredient in, cook- in cooking. If you want your food to taste good, if it's not at least a part of the meal that you're making, you'll put salt on the table and say, here you go, add this. Because what does salt do? It adds flavor. It adds texture or enhances the taste. It brings joy, so to speak, to your taste buds. Most of us love salt. We don't love salt by itself, but we love what it adds to food. So as I was putting this together, I was thinking how many times I ate at Panda Express. It would probably nauseate some of you. You might be like, oh, I eat there once. I get a stomachache. I don't go back. I think someone told me that when they're like at my work because I would bring back a Panda Express cup. And they're like, how do you eat there so often? And um, I ate there for like eight months, like every day. And they started to give me discounts. I knew the guys there. Got to talk to them about the Lord. It was pretty cool. And I got the same exact meal every time, probably over 100 times. I never got tired of it. If they had a Panda Express and Star, I'd probably eat there every day. 
Leah's embarrassed over there. She's like, why do you tell these stories? I don't know. They just come to me when I'm putting these messages together. They have what's called super greens. It's broccoli, kale, and something else. And then they have grilled teriyaki chicken and orange chicken. And that's what I get every time. It's very simple. Chicken and vegetables. And that orange chicken, it's like, it's like a chicken donut. You know, it's just so juicy and the flavor. And I don't know. That's how I describe it. But I looked up how much salt is in this meal when I put it all together. And it's like 3,000 milligrams, I think. And I'm like, that's, I think, why I enjoy it so much. The salt that's in it, the preservatives, the seasoning, it gets me going back. And so now that I'm at my new job, I'm, I get a lunch break and I'm like, how far is Panda Express? The other one was right down the street and this one was like a little too far. So I went to a sandwich place the other day and it just, it wasn't the same. So I was bummed. But what's the point? The flavor, the, the salt, I believe, is a big part of it. You take that salt out, I'm probably not going to be a repeat customer. I'm not going to like the chicken. It's not going to taste the same way. And in a sense, I think that's what Paul's saying here. Your speech needs to be seasoned with salt. It needs to be gracious. There should be an element of your speech and your life that draws people in. Yes, the gospel is offensive. Yes, people hate Christ. But their stony, cold, empty, dry hearts when they hear your speech seasoned with salt and the grace that's pouring forth and the kindness and the compassion, there's something about it that should draw the world. There's something about Jesus when he spoke that they said he's different. He doesn't speak like the rabbis or like these other people. No, he speaks with authority. He speaks with confidence. He speaks the truth, but he speaks words that are gracious. Ephesians 4 29 says let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth but only such a word that is good for the edification of the moment that it may give grace to those who hear that word unwholesome in Ephesians 4:29 has been translated rotten putrid corrupt and it's an interesting word because it actually speaks of a of plants fruit or animal animal carcasses that are decomposing how do you stop an animal carcass from decomposing. Salt, right? So you see the contrast there. If your words don't have salt, they're unwholesome. They're rotten words. It's speech that's corrupt. But when your speech is seasoned, it's preserving things. It's seasoning things, flavoring things, bringing out the taste. And so Paul is saying, let your words be edifying. They should be a blessing and encouragement to others with grace. So, as I get ready to bring this to a close, what does salt do to ice? You guys know this. I didn't know this in California. Maybe I did. Salt melts ice, right? They put it on the roads. I think some of these roads, there's so much gravel and, and rocks and stuff coming up because of all the salt corrosion, I think. I don't know. But salt breaks down the water molecule. It causes ice to melt, and that's how we should be. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 13, you are the salt of the earth. You break down the cold hearts. You, you come across these, sto these stony, cold, worldly hearts, and you bring them the salt and the light of Christ. You should melt people's hearts, so to speak, with the salt and light 
of Jesus Christ. That's his hands and feet going out into this world with wisdom, breaking down these hearts of stone. In John 7, when the religious leaders told the temple guards to arrest Jesus, they said, you need to go arrest Jesus. They come back without Jesus. And the religious leaders say, where is he? They respond in John 7, 46, no one ever spoke the way this man does. No one ever spoke like him. Authority, power, and grace. Luke 4, 22 says, all spoke well of Jesus and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. They said, isn't that Joseph's son, they asked. I've always wanted to do a teaching making non-believers scratch their head. That's going to be my title someday if I do that message. But to the point where they, they're talking to you, they're seeing your life, and they're scratching their head going, this doesn't make sense. I think that's what people did with Jesus. They were just so perplexed. No one talked like him. No one had this kind of grace pouring forth from their mouth. And as followers of Christ, people should say that about us at times. People should be bewildered, perplexed. How, how do you talk so graciously? Why are you so thankful? How do you praise so much? Why are you so kind? See, for me, it's a challenge at this job. I need it. I told Lee, I'm, I'm, working, I'm working with a chaplain. He's older than me. I, I, w- I was shadowing a nurse all day the other day. They're in their 50s, 60s, 70s. And the chaplain, man, he's really encouraging me. He's just full of joy. He's full of energy. I'm like, it's 2 p.m. That's, I need like my afternoon nap. And he's just, he's, hey, how's it going, everyone? He plays the guitar and he's singing and he's gracious and he's full of love and vibrance. And I'm like, okay, Lord, if for an, not for any other reason, I'm here just so that I can learn to be more like that. Because I go into a room and I'm kind of quiet and I kind of, I got to work my way up and work towards, and it just seems like it's so natural for him. For like nine hours straight, we're together and he's just, hey, how's it going? How are you? Can I pray for you? How's it going? I'm like, wow, that's amazing to where I'm sure he's been told this over the years. Why are you so happy? Why are you so thankful? Why are you so gracious? Why are you so kind? Okay, let me tell you why. Thank you for opening that door. And that's how it should be with us. We should long to be more like Christ. Let me close with this song. It's not too long. It goes like this. I'm weak, but thou art strong. Jesus, keep me from all wrong. I'll be satisfied as long as I walk. Let me walk close to thee. Just a closer walk with thee. Grant it, Jesus, is my plea. Daily walking close to thee, let it be, dear Lord, let it be. When my feeble life is over, time for me will be no more. Guide me gently, safely over to thy kingdom's shore, to thy shore. When they asked me to to take the job, they also said right before that, do you play guitar and sing? Because the other chaplain does and chaplains before him did. And I'm like, darn, I don't. I mean, I sing, I try to. And I was singing this yesterday. And so I told Leah, I really need to learn how to play guitar because these elderly people, their faces light up when you're singing to them and playing guitar. So I'll be practicing. But we're all singers, so to speak, of the word. Thankfulness, singing, joy, they all go hand in hand. And so as I finally close, we need to walk close to Jesus, praying, proclaiming, performing, preparing as we walk with wisdom outside in this cold world.